0: Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Wall Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Baggini. Our theme of expanding horizons continues this week with Lewis Gordon examining what it means for philosophy to be colonized and the challenges involved in decolonizing it. This is a subject that has generated a lot of heat in recent years, but Gordon's take sheds real light. Lewis Gordon is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut. He works in a number of areas of philosophy, including Africana philosophy, existentialism, phenomenology, social and political thought, post colonial thought, and also on the work of thinkers like W.E.B. Du Bois and Franz Fanon. His most recent books are Freedom, Justice and Decolonization and Fear of Black Consciousness. After Lewis's talk, there will be a discussion featuring questions from our live online audience. Before that, Here's Lewis Gordon on decolonizing Philosophy. Wunikisuk, for
1: those of you who are wondering what that means, that's Wampanoag for hello or good day. That's the language of the Wampanoag people, the people who were greeted by the pilgrims. They greeted uh, the pilgrims well. Unfortunately, that greeting wasn't reciprocated. Additionally, I will say... Uh, Dia Duet, uh, which is, many of you know, is Irish. I'm also of Irish ancestry. Vanakam, Tamil. I'm of Tamil ancestry. And shalom, assalamualaikum, hotep, and of course, again, hello. I will examine in this talk what it means for philosophy to be colonized and the challenges involved in decolonizing it in philosophical and political terms. Now, many of you are familiar with philosophy, are familiar with an enduring allegory. And that is the allegory offered from Plato's Republic. Plato, broad shoulders, even though his historical name was Aristocles. As many of you may know, and for those of you who don't, the allegory of the cave involved a group of prisoners in a cave with a bright flame behind them where they were looking at shadows that they took for reality. One of them escaped to shackles, went out of the cave, after adjusting to the light, realized that below was just shadows and above were the actual representations of reality. And eventually this led to the question of the forms. But we should also bear in mind that Plato understood that there was a profound responsibility when one acquires knowledge. Thus, this figure returned to the cave and tried to persuade his fellow women, men, and perhaps there were other gender designations in those times, to come out of the cave. And as you could imagine, this was a difficult battle to wage. Now, among philosophers today, uh, Alain Badou points out That this back and forth, this effort to get people out of the cave, is what he calls politics. But for now, what I would just say is that we have an enduring image in philosophy, and that is what it is to be imprisoned, to be imprisoned in ignorance or misinformation or, crucially today, disinformation, and the importance of being freed or liberated from that. Now, interestingly enough, this is an insight— also, in phenomenology, and if you're wondering what phenomenology is, it's the study of conscious phenomena after we have let go of some of our prejudicial attachments. And many miss the point, many critics of phenomenology, particularly the Husserlian brand, that his movement, movement to what is called a transcendental ego is a movement to the form or the structure of our relationship to the world. So, in effect, then, this relationship in which you're conscious of something, whether it's phenomena or thinking about reality, that is also a form of movement that's similar to that movement from the cave. Now, although I began right now with ancient Greek philosophy, we should bear in mind that one of the misinformation, or rather, and perhaps disinformation about philosophy, is that it began among ancient Greeks, and people even use the word Greek miracle. What's problematic about that is straightforwardly that it's false. For instance, when I teach my classes, I often offer this quotation, and this is a quotation from an ancient philosopher by the name of Antiph. And antiph writes, philosophers or the lovers of wisdom are those whose heart is informed about these things which would be otherwise ignored, those who are clear-sighted when they are deep into a problem, those moderate in their actions, who penetrate ancient writings, whose advice is sought to unravel complications, who are really wise, who instructed their own heart, who stay awake at night as they look for the right paths who surpassed what they accomplished yesterday, who are wiser than a sage. Man, if you're wiser than a sage, that's some serious wisdom. Who brought themselves to wisdom, who asked for advice and see to it that they're asked advice. And that's from the inscription of Antef in the 12th dynasty in Kemet, which is in East Africa. And that is from somewhere around 1900 BCE. So we're talking about basically, more than a 1,000, in fact, more than 1,500 years before the pre-Socratics. Okay? And that's my translation. The language, if you'd like to know, is Meduneter. And Kemet is the ancient African name for what was a country that was later colonized by the Macedonians, uh, also by the Persians, but anyway, and was renamed Egypt. Now, Metaphilosophical questions, because this is a talk about philosophy. In philosophy, we say metaphilosophy when it's about philosophy. Metaphysical question, of philosophy and the crisis of the role of philosophers have played uh, a crucial role in what we could call Euro-modern colonialism. Now, as this talk goes on, you'll see why I say Euro-modern colonialism. Uh, Just to hop ahead, the reason I say this is because part of the colonization is to reduce all concepts that we consider good into European concepts. And so we presume, for instance, to be modern is to be European, when all modern means is to belong to the present, which means that in many generations, even before the rise of Euro-modern colonialism, there were many moderns. And all the modern mean is you could understand yourself as belonging to the present through being connected to where the future will be. Now, these concerns are there not only in the formalism of what can be called analytical approaches, and analytical approaches tend to be what dominates Anglo-speaking worlds, but it is also a problem of Eurocentric reductionism and textualism of what can be called Eurocontinental approaches as well. Now, you notice I said Eurocontinental. And again, and I'm drawing on Nelson Maldonado Torres here, just as it's a problem to reduce the modern to the European, it's a problem to reduce the notion of continental exclusively to the European continent. Anyway, both point to a problem of philosophical practices that are cultural effects of the normative centering of thought as embodied in basically whiteness, as intrinsically reasonable, and it's often spoken of as ideal. But the same arguments pertaining to value neutrality, when people talk about neutral ideal theory, those same values mirror the notion of race neutrality and racism, where the default neutral term turns out to be white. In other words, most of the time when people are saying we're using non-racial terms, for the most part, especially in the academy, it's referring to whites. It, will, it can be different in other places, such as certain countries of Africa. But what's strange is that, or in Asia, but what's strange is the moment you get into the academy, it tends to use white as a default term. Moreover, your modern colonialism raises a set of questions And these questions arise from colonial models of how to think, such as first philosophy. Now, if you think about it, if you enslave people, colonize people, if you introduce racism, what this raises is a question of what it means to be human. And if you think about it, especially in terms of enslavement, to designate certain people property is to reduce them to things, which raises the question for them, what in reality am I? Am I a human being? And of course, if you're enslaved, if you're colonized, then you raise, this raises the question of freedom. And this is connected to what should I become? And connected to that is the metacritique of reason. And now, if you may wonder what metacritique of reason is, just as earlier when I said metaphilosophy, then clearly the metacritique of reason is a critique of the critique. And this critique of reason is based on the fact that el- the use of reason was rallied for the purposes of degradation, enslavement, colonization. And if reason can be used to misinform or disinform, then this creates a crisis of reason, which is, is reason any longer justified. So the metacritique of reason raises the question of the justification of justification. Now, along this way, this route, this requires me talking about what it means for philosophy to be colonized. Because if philosophy could be colonized, then philosophy suffers a legitimation or justification crisis. Well, Colonization in the Euro-Modern world, particularly of knowledge, takes the form of, one, racial and ethnic origins or misrepresentations of the history of the area of knowledge, which is in this case, philosophy. Two, the coloniality of its norms. Three, the market commodification of philosophy. Four, what I call disciplinary decadence. And five, Solipsism. And these are all specialized terms which I will explain. Now, what I'm going to do is to conclude uh, the discussion of these forms of colonization with what I call a teleological suspension of philosophy as consideration among other practices of thought. So let's get to the first one racial and ethnic origins and misrepresentations of the history of philosophy. Now, this is an easy matter to address. All you've got to do is present the actual history with nuanced discussions of the terms. For instance, you may notice earlier I referred to Antef and a writing of his that was at least about 1,500 years before the pre-Socratics. That is doing or demonstrating or showing the history because simply to mention it, would require a passive recipient of knowledge. But the thing to bear in mind is that when one refers to who was first or earlier, that doesn't necessarily mean better. And in fact, it doesn't also mean that those who are later are better. It simply means to establish a fact, and on that basis, continue the discussion of those ideas. Now, the work that's offered by those historians of philosophy or philosophical historians, they also offer a critique of what many practitioners of philosophy think the history of philosophy must be. And this is connected to an element of colonialism, because you see, if you were simply to use the material forces of warfare, such as what we're seeing happening in uh, the European continent right now with Russia attacking their Ukraine, or if you think of what's happened in West Asia in terms of the attack, what's going on with the Saudis and Yemen, and there's so many other examples we could think of in varieties of countries across the globe. The thing about it is that physical or material warfare for colonization, that is not sustainable. It is far more efficient to get the people to believe the things that are false and in those beliefs, they police themselves, they ultimately develop a system of their own colonization. Now, a critique in the context of philosophy connects to what could be called the Hegelian paradigm, named after the German philosopher G.W.F. Hegel. And that paradigm was based on the idea that the birth of thinking, so to speak, was in the East, and of course, the Northern East and its movement matures in the northern west. Now, this elides the history of the species and thought as a movement from south to north. Almost pretty much all the evidence shows that if you're looking for early thought, you look from south moving northward. Now, there are additional elements to consider. For example, the erasure of what today we call women in the formation of ancient art and thought. And because this is a short talk, I won't get into all the details here, but paleoarchaeology has revealed, for instance, that a lot of the paintings from the ancient world, up to 75% of the paintings were done by women. And similarly, the society to which I referred, Kemet, the scientists, philosophers, they were communities of women. It's not that they were exclusively communities of women, because there were men philosophers. I mentioned Antif, for instance, but the point here is that that kind of colonization has a gendered as well as racial ethnic element. So we go to the second, the coloniality of its norms, and that one is more key to philosophy because that requires the distinction between colonization and coloniality. The latter, coloniality, are the ongoing practices and norms by which the former, colonization, is rationalized. I talk about these issues in my book, Freedom, Justice, and Decolonization. But the short version of this is as follows. First, there is the unfortunate prevailing norm of treating philosophizing as an agonal or battling to the point of it sometimes being confused with high school debate. And so you could think about this, right? It has the structure, for instance, of treating philosophizing like war. You attack an opponent's argument, you defend your argument, that kind of a thing. And, and what happens with this is that there is, in the end, the winners. Now, the problem with this argument is that it's possible to win battles and be wrong. It's possible to beat up someone and be wrong. Simply winning a battle is not the same thing as being right. Okay? Now, what happens with that approach is that a lot of wasted time is spent, or rather was spent, and continues to be spent, in philosophy, to bad arguments and forms of argumentation that steer us away from reality. Now, of course, it's not the case that the fighting model is never necessary. For instance, the core of the fighting model is the law of non-contradiction. But it is, unfortunately, something that underwrites much of hegemonic professional philosophical practice in the 20th century and into now the third decade of the 21st and what that is is that you see even if you can point out a contradiction what one can what, there is a lot one can learn from understanding that not all contradictions are the same and these are insights that go on within analytical philosophy and other forms of philosophy as well my uh, former colleague jc beals for instance in his work comparative consistency in other words looking through What you can look at beyond consistency uh, is an example of this approach. Another thing to bear in mind is that if you take away the agonal or fighting approach, you can have the demonstration approach. And the demonstration approach is where you try to make something evidential. And you make evidence evidential through communicating, through the social practice of philosophy. And this requires accountability through which we can see what we fail to see, hear what we fail to hear, understand what we fail to understand. So implicit in this is the social disclosure of ideas. And this is much different from fighting with others. It is actually more like the spirit of what we see in not only ancient philosophies, but many contemporary communities of reasoning. In fact, in Jamaica, a community emerged called Rastafari, in which the participants sit down and they reason with each other. And the idea is to go through a kind of exchange that will bring us closer to truth. You'll see it among Ethiopian philosophers in their concept of hatata, and you could see it also in East Asian philosophy in analytics and many other forms. Then we get to C. Now, the second one requires a different conception of language. If we're going to argue about the communal, social, and communicative practices through which we reveal reality, one, we must then reject the model of human beings as internally closed, but seeking to reach outside. And this is a model that's dominated a lot of Euro-modern philosophy since Descartes, Hobbes, people like those. And it's the idea if you treat a human being as a kind of almost like an armor, and you're trying to get beyond the armor. If we understand language as something that's not a thing, like a vessel, we understand that it's disclosed and we're already out there. And this requires addressing the creative capacity of human reality as communicative, as also productive of meaning. Now, this last point about meaning is connected to the one I made about the public as philosophically significant. And that was implicit in Plato's Allegory of the Cave, right? He came back down to the public, right? The philosopher. Since public in this sense is not about the popular, but about what is not hidden. What, as we know in, the, for instance, the Greek language, is aletheia, which is that which is disclosed. In the longer version of what I'm talking about right now, you could link such concepts. To notions of truth. And in the English language, truth comes from the birth, which means also about that in which you can put your faith. In Latin, verification, in Greek, aletheia, and in ancient Kemet or Egyptian, we have ma'e. But there are many other examples of this. And they all boil down to the question of accountability as understood relationally or through what we could call relational metaphysics. And what this means is you don't think of a human being as a closed reality onto itself, as a substance, but you look at a human being as a relationship, as an activity. And in fact, there are many languages in which human beings are looked at in this way. But what happens when you have colonialism is that you make a shift from verb-based languages to noun-based languages, okay? There is, for instance, a philosopher by the name of Michel Spitzer who, point, who observed that many languages actually have 70% verbs and 30% nouns, but when colonization occurs, as what happened with the English language, it shifts to having more nouns than verbs because of the attachment to property. But anyway, in that regard, I could basically point out that I interrogate a variety of concepts when we look at this question to address what we three think as what is considered basic. And this ranges from the epistemological, in other words, the theory of knowledge, to metaphysics where you look about necessity and reality, to ethics where you look at norms or what are the right and wrong things to do, good and bad, etc. And I talk about a lot of these in my book, Disciplinary Decadence. Now, there is, connected to this this strain of thought, there's also the norm of writing. Now, when many of us think about philosophy, we often think about the canonical works, the written works. But what we fail to understand is most philosophy isn't written. All you've got to do is go to a bar, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Most of the time, philosophy is spoken, engaged, reflected upon, and only a tiny fragment is written. And so if you were even to put all the libraries, all the written work of philosophy together that we have, it would be misrepresenting precisely because most of philosophy, most of philosophy was never written at all. Yet it is inherited through the oral transmission of knowledge in every society. But of course, one of the misrepresentations of many societies is the idea that only European societies or only Asian and European societies write, which is also false. Many societies write. But the point here is is not to make the claim that it's only by virtue of writing that they could be philosophically legitimate. So now we move to the question of market commodification. Now here there's the problem whose structure is similar to what's called theodicy. Theodicy translated, is from Greek, means God's justice. Think of theodicy this way. When you're a kid and you argue with your parents about God, you may say, if God existed, why is there so much evil in the world? And your parents may say, look, who are you to question God? That's one defense of God, which basically says you're limited, God is not. The other defense of God is that God gave human beings free will and human beings screw things up. But in both cases, God is left off the hook. Now, Theodician arguments, right, basically structure something as divine and ultimately through its divinity, ontological. And by ontological, it means it's as absolute being. Now, the arguments, if we look at them from Theodician arguments, they point out certain contradictions, and the contradictions are ruled out because the Theodicean being has to be what's called maximally consistent. In other words, there can be no point at which there's a contradiction for that being. Now, although consistency is important for humanity, maximal consistency militates against freedom and possibility. I usually illustrate it this way, who in the world would want to be married to a maximally consistent person? There's a point where if that person is maximally consistent that the partner may say, you know, you're so consistent that you're unreasonable. And this already gives you a clue that reasonability and consistency, maximum consistency that is, are not identical. If we bring it to the market, the deification of the market Treats the market as maximally consistent, which means anything that contradicts the market must be gobbled up by it or placed outside of it. The market commodification of knowledge then includes that of philosophy. It does so through the logic of that becomes not examining what poses a question to or off the market, but instead the market of that logic and mode of questioning. Thus, instead of the philosophical analysis or critique of the market, we have the market of philosophy. And the market of philosophy commodifies philosophy, and that market commodification of philosophy is a form of market colonization of philosophy through rendering its capacity to question the market impotent. It also means that certain areas of philosophy hold sway not on the basis of the philosophical reasons they offer, but instead because of their marketability. Bear in mind that marketability now is not identical with consensus or the shared realization of evidence and its evidentiality, but it does function as a force to silence those who may be critics of certain trends in philosophy. Now we turn to disciplinary decadence. This is a term I developed in my book bearing the same name, although it goes back to the 90s from a book I wrote called Phenomenal and the Crisis of European Man. When a discipline is being created, it is attuned to reality and it develops resources through which to address reality. However, when a discipline is decaying, a discipline begins to succumb to the resources of colonization that I mentioned earlier. Disciplinary decadence is a consequence of epistemic colonization leading to forms of epistemic closure or knowledge closure, especially at disciplinary levels. Now, bear in mind the point is more than epistemological here, but it is because philosophy is knowledge-producing that this concern comes to the fore. This takes the form of structuring a discipline and its methodological resources as if they were created by the gods or God. The result is methodological fetishism at the price of reality. Some of you may be familiar with this. There are people in some fields who may, when an author has written a study, simply look at the method without asking whether the results true or false. Transcending disciplinary decadence requires what I call a teleological suspension of disciplinarity. It requires being willing to go beyond one's discipline in a communicative practice attuned to reality. And this may mean being in conversation with other disciplines, but bear in mind it's not the same as interdisciplinarity. Because interdisciplinarity, each discipline may treat itself as whole or complete, and they could thus be like ships passing in the night. Transdisciplinarity requires communicating with the discipline and drawing upon resources that require a form of humility regarding the resources one's discipline has. So this means disciplines learning from each other, and they may even go beyond each other and develop new disciplines. Now, this is, in fact, what many of those who produce revolutionary contributions to philosophy historically did. They came from architecture, astronomy, chemistry, engineering, geography, law, medicine, physics, poetry, and more. And some of the people I'm talking about range from people such as Aristotle, the physician, all the way through to Hume, the lawyer. We could go through so many. But if we pick, or in in very ancient times, Hotep, who was architect, astronomer, physician, the list goes on and on, on and on, okay? But even if you just look at medicine, you'll find Imhotep, you'll find Lady Presahat, these are all ancient East Africans, you already know about Aristotle. You can have Gihong Hong in China, Dao Ying. you could have John Locke, right? In England, you could have Anton Wilhelm Africanus Amo from Ghana and Germany, you could have Mary Seacole from Jamaica. You could have Zhang Jingjong, William James, uh, Leo Tolstoy, Carl Jaspers. These are physicians, psychiatrists. You could have the engineer and architect, Ludwig Wittgenstein. You could have the psychiatrist, Franz Fanon. There's so many others. Rene Descartes, physics, mathematics, etc. Bertrand Russell, Lord Russell, mathematics. Or Husserl, Edmund Husserl, mathematics. But the point I'm stressing is that they're looking at reality and more concerned with the problems, and in doing so, they generate a new philosophy. So philosophy, in other words, is imperiled where commitments to truth and reality fall sway to disciplinary and methodological allegiances, the result of which is a set of siloed practices. And this leads to the last, solipsism. Now, this is a technical world in philosophy, but the short version is, is if you treat your discipline as the world, then you've turned away from reality and solipsism becomes the effect. Solipsism is evident from all the premises I just um, offered. And epistemic closure leads to the false conclusion of an ontological reality, an absolute reality, into which all possibilities are squeezed. Now, if you're going to decolonize philosophy, It's pretty clear that to do so is something more than an attunement or attitude. The clearly relational arguments here means that philosophy should consider being true to its roots of connectedness and relations to reality instead of normative appeals to purity, yes, care quotes, purity, and reductive reasonings of translating reality into singular domain. And this is something, there are a lot of people who are obsessed with translation. But you see, the thing with translation, and I think the philosopher Kwasiwe Ruto, in his book, Cultural Universals in Particulars did a splendid job with this. He pointed out that there's a translation fallacy. And the translation fallacy is to treat all languages as isomorphic, as having a one-to-one relationship with each other. But the way we actually learn languages is that we discover that different languages may have different concepts that are not translatable into other languages. And what we have the ability to do once we've learned a language is, to simply, is simply to learn the new concepts, okay? And in learning this new concept, if we treat, for instance, our area of philosophy as a language, learning the new concepts means that philosophy, ironically, has the ability to go beyond itself. This, of course, means drawing upon the openness of multidimensional and multirelational approaches to the study of reality. Now, of course, the question of reality, here quotes, is raised here, but bear in mind how it is placed with the term human reality. The human in the formulation is not a closed idea as in substance that I mentioned earlier, or in formal logic, a well-formed formula, but instead an ongoing openness of becoming that also constitutes. Now, this insight is in many languages and the symbols they use to articulate humanness and humanity, for example, in Chinese, you have ren. To imagine the character ren, imagine you take your hand and you put your fingertips together and you open your palm and that way beneath you is an opening, that is ren. And it refers to the human being or person. But in the language of Meduneter, you could also think of the concept ank, And that concept referring to humankind or rumpt, is usually symbolized by a sandal, right, ankh, with flowing water, flowing like existence, and a human figure poised to stand up. And you could see how philosophical this is, because a human being is something from the earth that rises, but of course, human being doesn't fly. Now, mankind or humankind is rumped is also symbolized in that ancient language as a figure, or at times a male and female figure, or sometimes three figures, poised to stand up. So again, in the very symbols, we can have the philosophical richness, Now, as meaning is at work, when the vessel model of reality, the closed ontological model, that should be questioned into the unfolding model in which we are successive subsets. Thus, reality has ontological parts that are transcended through open possibilities. In other words, the idea of trying to contain reality is already fallacious. One relates to reality. Now, to conclude, at a practical level, we should remember that most philosophical knowledge, as I mentioned earlier, isn't written, but engaged through varieties of media, from spoken to signed to performed. At the political level, there is the need to rethink the logic of outcome before performance. This requires a kind of responsibility akin to political responsibility, and this is back to the allegory of the cave, the political responsibility, where it is where its undertaking as always, is always, for the production of what is greater than the self, and is in the end an inheritance across time to those who are, ultimately anonymous to those who produce it. And that anonymity, when we think about it, is a profound form of anonymity. Because it requires a commitment that's premised and not on something, or rather, other than a narcissistic attachment to a reproduction of the self, into a more radical conception of openness, which I, in my writings, call radical love, which is an understanding that one participates in the condition of possibility for others to learn and to develop the dignity and freedom to understand and relate to reality as well. And because we may never know them, just as the ancestors of which I spoke, of whom I spoke, whether it's Imhotep, Antef, Plato, Aristotle, Hypatia, Presahet, all the way through to individuals such as Simone de Beauvoir, all the way to the present, the point of the matter is they wrote And we today, in relation to them, were anonymous, just as those to come in relation to us are anonymous as well. But this commitment to truth is something that connects humanity subjunctively across generations. And with that, I end. Thank you.
0: Early on in the talk, you talked about how a lot of uh, language concepts, things which are officially non-racial and neutral, their default terms, they actually are are white. And I didn't get time to give examples. Could you perhaps sort of give us some examples of what you mean by that to try and make that point vivid?
1: Oh, certainly. If we think about, for instance, when we read... Uh, many text, many ordinary texts, and we simply hear terms like a person, a woman or a man went to the store. Most people, they presume that an individual, at least in the context of the North American and the European Academy are white, or in the satellites of those places. For instance, if you're going to study at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, or if you are in certain places such as the University in Kenya, et cetera. Now, my point is not that this is absolute. One of the things we should bear in mind is that a lot of this came out of historical social scientific work. And what I mean by this is quite a number of the ways in which we get data, get information on ordinary people are based on studies of basically freshmen and sophomores uh, in Northern academies, and the majority population f- in those academies are white. So that's where some of that presupposition comes in. But it also has an insidious element because at the level of normative popular culture, there's an extent to which we're bombarded with a conception of reality in human beings as white, except when an adjective is placed before them. So, for most people, when they hear the terms woman, man, or boy, or girl, or person, they presume they're white precisely because they did not hear black man, black woman, brown man, brown woman. They did not hear Latino or Latinx or Latina. They didn't hear Punjabi or Dalit, or they did not hear um, Tamil, etc. And this is, pertains as well to East Asians. So, in the context, for instance, of say the Chinese Academy, although often there are people who may presume in their everyday life that they'll meet a person who's a fellow Chinese person, quite often in the Academy, particularly if you're at a place like the University of Hong Kong or if you're in Beijing, there is a sense in which, if the moment you're dealing with abstract humanity, the default becomes white. And it's rather striking, especially when I've had students from China or from Japan, and we talk about this, they actually say, yeah. They didn't even realize the extent to which when they're reading and writing, and they're thinking about a universal human, a white human, an abstract notion of a white human pops up. But of course, this need not be permanent. This is a function of a reality of colonialism, a notion of a hegemonic assertion of who counts as human and who does not, and also the legitimating practices that embodied real thinking, real organization of ideas in people who are white. And the point I'm making here is not simply racial. It is also gendered in such a way that many people historically presume that the agent of knowledge, if one were to say a person, would be a male person. And that's one of the reasons why in the lecture, I brought up that even when we think of Paleolithic humanity, we often think of a person who is male, when in fact, quite a bit of what we have inherited were produced
0: by females. Thanks, I can certainly see that in terms of the default Human being being taken as as white. And we actually had the little image there, the Vitruvian man, as as uh, so to sort of illustrate that. You know, that this this stands for humanity. Guess what? It's both male and it's white. And obviously, in, in psychology, one can see this is a huge problem because the vast majority of uh, Psychology experiments are conducted on on white Western industrialized rich uh, males, young students generally. People will say that may be true of that, but what about you know at the conceptual level? If we talk about the sense reference distinction in philosophy, for example, or we talk about you know truth and so forth, uh, a lot, I think that for a long time in philosophy there's been a view that look, there's nothing uh, white about those things. There's nothing colonial, essentially colonial or, or racial about those terms. Uh, do you think that's wrong? Do you think that even, even these kind of concepts that philosophers deal with, which don't on their surface appear to have any particular you know, racial uh, bias to them, do, do you think they too um, ha- have these sort of colonial traces?
1: No, I don't think that. <laughs> I do think <laughs> I do think that terms however, the mistake we make is when we look at terms as being permanent and fixed. If we go back to the old Parmenidean Heraclitian debate, or if we go back into ancient Egypt or Kemet, if we talk about Un, you know, the flow, the primordial chaos, and uh, we would talk about Achman. The basic point is about how we use the terms. So, for instance, within a colonial framework, the idea is to use the, the terms, the formalism, as an example, in a way that makes it barred to bring in the form of specificity that may actually bring that formalism in relationship with reality that may bring out its contradictions. So for instance, if one were to say sense and reference, that there's nothing racial or gendered implicitly in that. But if one were to say that it's only legitimate if we were to talk about sense and reference in a way that doesn't bring up how sense and reference may actually be part of a particular organizational professional practice that may make us not bring up the reality that there are languages in which sense could be questioned as a sense of what. In other words, a relational sense of sense or reference, reference to what. And if we make it in such a way that we in advance make it illegitimate, to point out the specificity of to what, then we could be in a situation that those who control the conditions that facilitate them able to live in an abstract relation to reality could be those who are more centered in discussion. And so a good example of this is if we would think about the presupposition that we're more legitimate, if we ultimate or even more universal if we were to, say, be colorblind. But if we are to be colorblind, we may have a certain form of formalism that already makes, in effect, those who are able to be identified as supposedly colored may have in them an intrinsic illegitimacy, which means that we'll have to come back and question why is it that we're attached to something that extracts away rather than something that connects. And of course, when I bring this up, I don't mean to say it intrinsically will automatically make it racist or sexist. Not at all. What I'm saying is that we may, if we're going to be radically committed to questions of truth, ask ourselves why, when we extract away, do we treat that as the end or the completion of a story instead of part of a story? So, What I'm arguing there for us to bring some humility to it that will enable us to be in a proper critical relationship with other dimensions of reality
0: that could appear. Actually, you beautifully led into our first question I'm gonna take from the audience, which is from a colleague of yours, Ian Kidd at the University of Nottingham. So Ian says, thank you. And he says, the theme of your talk seems to be a failure of humility among many practitioners of philosophers. How essential is that to your thinking?
1: It's extraordinarily essential to my thinking. And as you can see, I'm proud to use the word essential. (laughs) (laughs) I just just had to do that philosophical joke. The thing about it is is, there is a danger that all philosophers face. And the danger that all philosophers face is that, you know, when you say you do philosophy, people think you're smart. It's one of these things where, And if you think about it, if you were to raise a child constantly with designating to the child, you are smart. Although your intent may be to make that child confident, you could create a real obnoxious individual. One of the things we have to understand that may be very different, and it's something I argue for in a lot of my writings, and one of the reasons why I also quoted Antef was not only to demonstrate an ancient source. What I like about that Antef quote is that Antef is also acknowledging the philosopher as a student. In fact, all philosophers, ultimately, we're trying to learn. And in the process, when we try to learn, if we're an arrogant philosopher, we imagine we don't need others with whom to learn. But if we were to let go of that arrogance and understand that we're part of communities of learning and we enjoy what it means to learn together, that means then that humility would enable us to be connected in such a way that enables knowledge to grow. So yes, yes, um, absolutely. Humility is important too, my thought. But I should add that I'm also critical of false humility. False humility Mm -hmm. fetishizes humility for the sake of just simply manipulating the outcome. Genuine humility is an acknowledgement that there's always more to learn. And this is one of the reasons why, even though some people may look at some philosophers as stodgy, like, say, Edmund Husserl, he was constantly reminding all of us that every time he sat down to philosophize, he was at a beginning. He was starting over. And this is where we realize it's not so much that no philosophical matter is settled. The humility is something a little different. The humility is connected to something that I always say to my students. I always say something that really uh, bug my students out. I always say, you know, nobody has read a philosophical text. And they always looked at me shocked. What do you mean? And I said, actually, no important text anybody has read. Everybody is reading the text. They is reading the ongoing. And we know this every time. It doesn't matter how much you have read a great novel, a great philosophical text. You come back to it and you're like, oh, my God, why didn't I see that? And the reason is, of course, it's because, you see, the organization of life and experiences are such that you are now in a relationship with it that brings additional information that enables you to see what you failed to see before. And this understanding that it is an ongoing activity, a constant returning that has with it growth, because seeing something you failed to see before is growth. And a society that has the humility to understand that it's an ongoing working together for us to have the kind of growth that we can call epistemic growth, that is part of the humility that is not false humility. It is the actual commitment to continued growth through being able to put our ego to the side so the relationships can develop through which reality and our
0: relationship to it, our ongoing attunement to it, can grow. Yeah, we I mean, say about false humility is so true, isn't it? In fact, it's made it difficult to, to talk about because I think often people who talk about humility the most, actually, are often the, the, the least humble. But then we want to talk about it because we want to advocate it. You, know, you reminding me also of something um, Jonathan Ray said in a talk many, many decades ago now about becoming a philosopher. That in a way, one shouldn't um, even say one is a philosopher. One is always... Trying to become a philosopher is a it's a process. I did want to just put this question up, actually, from David uh, Crispin, because it, it relates to something you were saying. And thank you for saying this, David, because he says, "I never read or write philosophy, and I didn't finish school. When able to meet philosophy soft in my life, why?" And he says, "Sorry, I'm extremely dyslexic. Plus, English is n- is not my first language. I'm glad that question has been asked because I th- I think you did sort of touch on this issue that." Uh, we shouldn't uh, confine philosophy certainly to to written text. It's something that is is in life, but also you know the exclusion things around exclusion can can occur for reasons like this. Being dyslexic, for example, or not speaking the language which you know a dominant tradition of philosophy is is spoken in. What what can you say about what it is that makes David able to nonetheless confront philosophy despite his dyslexia and limitations in his education?
1: Well. First, thank you so much uh, for asking that question. Full disclosure, I'm dyslexic too. In addition to that, I have eye convergency insufficiency syndrome, multiple epilepsies. It's amazing how many philosophers have a lot of these conditions, all the way back to Socrates through to Wittgenstein. Just, uh, you know, if we think of novelists like Dostoevsky, we think of artists like Prince. There's a whole discussion right now. And uh, I-, I could bring up issues about why I'm technically, have multiple disabilities, but the thing about it is I always make a distinction between a disability and an inability. And ironically, I've found that a lot of my so-called, you know, I mean, that's the language of it, disabilities, have paradoxically also been strengths. Because at the same time, most people have no idea of how difficult it is for me to read anything and also how difficult it is for me to write anything sometimes because i could play piano and drums and other instruments i actually feel words in the typewriter because if i were to look at them it 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 won't work so but this is the whole point you see if we go even back to the question when we were talking earlier about uh, humility, or even calling oneself a philosopher. You know, for the first decade of my career, I didn't call myself a philosopher at all. In fact, I took the position that calling myself any of those things would get in the way of actual thinking. And it was very funny. I remember having a conversation with Calvin Schrag about this. Calvin Schrag is a very famous uh, philosopher from Purdue University. And when he was in grad school, he was about to choose a dissertation advisor, and he went to the DGS, the Director of Graduate Studies. And the director asked him, you know, with whom you want to study, and, and Cal said, with Paul Tillich. And the DGS said, Tillich, he's not a philosopher, he's a thinker. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, could you imagine when philosophers stopped thinking? Well, I, in a similar spirit, had taken the position that too many philosophers weren't actually thinking. And uh, I wanted to learn more about reality, so I said I would try to do radical theory. And by that, what I mean is I'm not going to presuppose what my discipline is. I'm just going to look at the problems. And what uh, changed things for me was um, I was giving a lecture around the year 2000 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And a good friend, his name is Charlie Shepherd, drove up from Albany, New York, to the lecture. And he said, you know, Lewis, you know, call yourself a philosopher. You're very, you're very careful not to do this. But he said, now, by this point, I had several monographs and anthologies and lots of articles written. And he said, um, you know, I've read a lot of them and I wouldn't say they're not philosophy, he said. He said, a lot of it is new philosophy. There are new concepts being developed. They're not only philosophical ones, but they definitely include philosophical ones. And at that moment, it struck me that he was right. And I began to say, you know what? I'll say I'm also a philosopher. And for me, saying I'm also a philosopher was not to say there's something wrong with philosophy or something wrong with the other things I do. When there are people who read my writings in anthropology, psychology, in sociology, in physics, in education, in politics, in religion, in dance, in musicology, I don't see anything wrong with that because when I see them use those ideas, it means they're actually reading. You notice I use the present participle, reading the work. And that compels me to learn from them what they're taking from the work because I see my published work as actually not completed work, but as a form of um, expression of my limitation. And by that, what I mean is it's the point at which I'm not learning from researching by myself and simply presenting at meetings and with others. It's a point at which those who can take the ideas on their own could be this source of inspiration for continued learning. And in fact, one of my proudest moments was one time when somebody who was unaware that uh, I was the person to develop the theory of disciplinary decadence, had written in a forum uh, that I was um, participating in that, you know, I should look into the concept of disciplinary decadence. My ideas, <laughs> I could learn something from that. And, and somebody politely said, Ah, uh, he developed the concept. And I said, No, no, this is great. This is great because it means that the person is thinking more about the concept than the author. And perhaps this person could bring something innovative to it. So if we come back to this question, of course, if we come back to dyslexia, in a way, dyslexia functions in, as an interesting metaphor and allegory for a lot of what I was saying about language. Because you see, uh, the more rigid, limited view of language looks for isomorphism, a one-to-one relationship with word and world, sentence and thought, etc. But there are these moments in which, because we arrange words differently, we have to think differently, we have to organize things differently. There are times in which that disorientation can enable us to communicate in different ways and use different resources of imagination. And I do think that not only my dyslexia and perhaps David's dyslexia, but so many other people, whether they are people in um, various other aspects of life, whether, you know, we know that Steve Jobs had dyslexia. We know that there are all kinds of great musicians. It's pretty clear to me that someone like Mozart may have been in this category. But I don't also want to get to the overvalorization where we begin to talk about the people who um, are what society calls geniuses. Because, you see, they're so well-known. We don't know about the people who may not get any recognition and are struggling in the world and doing their best, you see? And, and in my case, I have five kinds of epilepsy. There are, more, there are about 39 kinds of epilepsy, but I have also one of the kinds of epilepsies that, um, that have been associated with people, let's just say, of high intellectual achievement. And what it is is we're high functioning, even though we're not there. But at the same time, there are these moments in which there's something healthy about giving you a reason to question yourself now and then and say, you have to give an account And if we go back to that earlier humility part, one of the things about people with multiple conditions like dyslexia or epilepsy, et cetera, is that we constantly have to account for ourselves. And part of the humility I'm arguing for in philosophy as a discipline, I actually think it's healthy for philosophy to account for itself, to have to be able to explain itself, even in forums where we're not with what's called professional philosophers. I actually think we learn a lot from there because we now have to be off of our comfort zone and work out ways to communicate ideas more clearly. And I find it also similar when I work in different languages. I had put myself in an uncomfortable situation a decade, more than a decade ago, about going on 20 years ago, by committing myself to write, to learn to write, an, uh, uh, an article or a book chapter in a different language every year and there was one year I would write three articles in those languages and uh, you know what is French or German or Spanish or you know and but but the thing is I found I had to think differently I could not think in those languages, the way I'm thinking and in English. And the part I remembered, I was so scared when I first submitted my work there because I expected it to be trashed. I expected it to be, especially with French, you know, how dare you do this to this language? But to my surprise, the referee reports and the uh, editorial reports had no more recommendations for me to, to fix what I was writing than what I normally get in English. And as you could imagine, for me as a person who's dyslexic, writing in English is already something I struggle with. So in a way, it was not only an affirmation of the importance of writing with humility, but it's also a celebration of you can survive if you
0: actually act to give a good account, do your best and learn from the feedback others offer. Thanks so much. I should say a lot of the comments have actually been just to thank you for the talk. <laughs> and and a lot, of the, several of the questions are actually asking in some ways with some practical advice about what we can actually do to act on what you're saying. I don't know whether that in, in itself would be something that, that pleased you. But there's, there's one question here from, and I, again, I apologize for pronouncing the name, Saroj maybe, Chowdhury. And I think it relates to this idea of disciplinary dec- decadence. You talked about the need to escape silos and how that the problems are being in particular disciplines and methodological fetishism as well. And, and this this question is asking about prerequisites for a research proposal, wherein one is required to outline the method methodology in advance. For example, if one is intending to pursue research on gender relations among a certain tribal community and cannot decide on the research methodology on the on the at the outset, um, the, the profession, or the academic world has these kind of disciplines which do force people to you know really choose their methods spell them out etc etc i think a lot of people think that although that may have problems there's a kind of a need for that kind of discipline if you don't have it what do you have? how would you decide on research proposals if someone comes along and says i'm not sure about what methodology would be it's too early to say i want to be open i want to be how how do you then even say whether it's a good project or not sure well that well thank you so
1: much uh Choudhury, that is the last name uh Soroj, for that wonderful question There are several things. First, let me point out at the point at which decadence occurs, okay? The disciplinary decadence argument basically reminds us that disciplines are created by human beings and they're animated by human limitation, which means that they're, they're usually expressions given a particular context and the development of methodological resources that can be used for that context until it reaches its limitation, okay? So within a particular framework, there's a form of rigor in methods. Now, the point at which they become decadent is when we forget that they were human created and we we lie to ourselves when they reach those limits. And often we do that by retroactively treating our discipline as if it is methodologically and conceptually complete. Now, in everyday language, we have encountered this, for instance, when, say, you've you you have you, you're, you've entered a conversation to deal with a problem and you encounter an historian, and the historian would either say, well, that's not historical, okay? And usually the people who are disciplinarily dec- decadent always announce their discipline, but then at the same time, they try to squeeze everything into their discipline. So it's an historian who criticizes, say, a sociologist for not being historical, a sociologist who criticizes a literary scholar for not being sociological, a biologist who criticizes them for not being biological, a physicist who criticizes them for not being premised upon physics. And we could go all the way through the psychologist who looks at the psychological phenomena and criticize them for not being psychological. And of course, a philosopher who criticizes all of them for not being philosophical. However, however, If one takes the position that you're in a human practice and that there are limitations, then one is alert to the point at which one is actually trying to squeeze reality into the discipline instead of attune the discipline to reality. So if we come to the very practical level of research proposals, first, there's the context. Usually what one has to look at as a research proposal or if one is in a discipline, that the project and the discipline function basically as what I call keys. And what a key is, is that which opens a door. But of course, if you think in a structuralist way, the key opens a door that is actually another key. And you have a succession of keys that bring intelligibility to what you're doing. And so, if we come to the question of a specific disciplinary moment, okay, a method can be proposed as not, in philosophical terms, ontological. And by that, what I mean is the method is tentative. The method could be what one could say in one's proposal is that these are the received methodological practices of this discipline. However, the move from method to methodology requires actually being able to assess critically whether the method works. But we do not know that in advance, if we, unless we actually, in our practice, are willing to be open to methodological failures. Now, this has happened in many cases. This happens in the transition, for instance, from Aristotelian physics to Newtonian physics, from Newtonian physics to Einstein physics, right? We're dealing with the theory of relativity, et cetera. And it's also what happens when we go to from there into quantum mechanics. Because as we know, what we begin to discover is that reality at a macro level is very different from reality at a micro infinitesimal level And at that level, there may be different laws. Well, similarly, when we're dealing with human reality, to impose onto that reality a methodological framework that already has a completed domain would require for human beings to be closed off from possibility. In other words, for the human subjects to be completed subsets of that domain. Now, that is a fallacy. The tricky part then is, and I think a great example of this was Franz Fanon. Franz Fanon basically said that if he's going to deal with the colonial imposition onto methods, then he said he would leave the leave the regular methods to what he called botanists and mathematicians. Because what he's trying to say is they have a very direct staked out domain. But if he's going to be critical, even at the methodological level, He has to suspend his judgment. He has to suspend the notion of the legitimacy of even whether the methodological inheritance he had from psychiatry is not itself affected by a particular effort to make human beings or a particular class of human beings into colonized subjects. And I'll give you an example of what he he meant. He would have patients who would... um, clients who would come to him and say, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. And he would say, from what? And if they pointed out from being degraded daily, from being called the N-word, from being treated, over-sexualized as a woman, et cetera, et cetera, he would say, don't you think there would be a problem with you if you were not angry at being treated that way? In other words, perhaps you are suffering because you're healthy. Now, his advice to those people is you have to go out in the world and be active, socially active, politically active in transforming the way you are affected in life. But if we back up, if you presuppose the completeness, the methodological completeness and legitimacy of the inherited psychiatric practice, then the goal should be to make the client at home and happy at one with a society that degrades him or her. That would in effect be the happy slave. And in fact, there were actually developments in psychiatry, for instance, concepts like dreptomania. Dreptomania was an enslaved person who is suffering from the illness of desiring freedom. <laughs> <laughs> so when so the point at which you can be self-critical of your human science, that's the point at which one has to not Presume the legitimacy of the method, but be open to question it, especially when it produces results like happy slaves.
0: Uh, A lot of people have been persuaded that they do need to broaden what they're teaching, studying, and what they're teaching. A lot of teachers. Um, And a lot of them, like me, uh, have this slight problem, which is that all our education was extremely narrow. Uh, We we didn't learn back in the day the things that we wish we did learn now. Um, Last week, uh, Chief A. Jeffers gave a really good talk on Du Bois, and, you know, Du Bois didn't appear on any curriculum that I was studying when I was a student. That's my loss. So um, somebody who's going by the name of Insert Philosophy Here um, people don't often go by their real names. It says, how do we expand the scope of philosophy coverage to include broader perspectives without simply tacking on non-canonical philosophers but integrating them into a holistic diversity of philosophy? And I say, I think the background to a previous comment this person made, uh, background to this being, of course, that people are often coming to this as people whose you know, own education and background to date doesn't have the diversity and richness in it that they aspire their own students to have.
1: Thank you, insert philosophy here. That's a wonderful question. There's several things I could bring up. First of all, my training, my formal training, so to speak, as an undergraduate formally trained in what's called analytical philosophy. I was also trained in uh, classics, but classics as defined in terms of Greek and Latin. I was also trained in political theory, and I also... Uh, loved, loved astronomy and physics. Okay? Now, within that framework, I wasn't getting a lot of the things I'm talking about today. But that doesn't mean I wasn't getting something. Because remember before, I said all education is a key. And what I was developing was a skill set. What I was learning was how to learn. So when I went to become a graduate, when I went to graduate school, and I didn't go to graduate school right away. In my case, I actually was playing music as a, as, a, as a jazz musician, and I was working in the New York public school system, and I had created a school called a Second Chance Program, and it was a school for young people nobody wanted to teach, and they were so difficult to teach that I was told that if ten percent of them were able to complete secondary school, it would be a successful program, and we managed to get eighty-five percent of them to complete and go on with their lives in very constructive ways. And the question was, when you do that, you have to do a study. And the study, I realized, could not answer properly the question of human potential. Because you see why those pro- that program worked was because the students were addressed as human beings and there was a com- an environment of faith in their ability to learn. And I'm talking about secondary school young people who were reading things like Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition, took up fencing, did all kinds of creative, beautiful stuff. So what am I leading up to with this story? Well, you see, the thing was, I never enter a classroom as a didactic professor or as Moses with the tablets. I enter as a person who fell in love with learning and continued to learn. And what I discovered as along the way is that my students are not only people who are learning, but they bring experiences that I too can learn from. So we learn together. Now, it doesn't mean that as an advanced student, I don't have a kind of authority or legitimacy, but you see, because I've announced myself as an ongoing student, it means I have to account for myself when I explain things, which means for the students themselves, there is a distinction between an authority and the demonstration of what it is to be authoritative. Now, how does this come about? Well, you see, because of having studied Greek and Latin, and because of my background as a person who's Jewish being related to Hebrew, it opened the the doors for me to study other languages, and I began to, as I learned them, begin to see anomalies, things that didn't add up, things didn't make sense. And what I've learned also as a musician is that you learn through doing. You perform the music, you work at it, and you are opening up yourself to continued growth. So, what, so one of the things that's important here is that every, everybody who have even been trained narrowly is like somebody who has developed a language that enables her, him, or them to learn other languages. And if they're committed to that ongoing learning, then if we bring back something, and you brought up Chica Jeffers, he brought up, I, I, my guess is he probably brought up Du Boisian double consciousness. And what Du Bois pointed out in his discussion of double consciousness is there's one kind of flat double consciousness. And that's when you only see yourself as in terms of how the society has constructed you, okay? But there's another kind of double consciousness, which Diane Anna Gordon elaborates, called potentiated double consciousness, which is where if you can see yourself as not limited, as not a problem, but instead as a human being facing problems and having to address them, then you... Raise the question of a society that constructs people into problem. And now you can address that society the way Fanon had those clients address a society, but it means taking on the responsibility of what can be its potential. And this potential, this dialectical movement of growth, is called learning. So the thing that why research is important Why every teacher should continue to learn, why every teacher should continue to study, is because that increases our relationship to reality and our skill sets. I didn't overnight know the kind of things I'm talking about today. But it's because I was constantly encountering the contradictions that it made me ask, maybe there's more to learn. Maybe what I'm dealing with are false universals. And the moment I particularize either Europe, Western, et cetera, that brings upon me the responsibility to learn beyond Europe, beyond Western, et cetera. And of course, I'm not gonna learn everything, but what I do learn along the way enables me to have a richer relationship with others. And also, even though I don't always Speak the languages perfectly. For instance, even even you know in the I, I just so people could spell it out when I was referring to the Irish when I said Dia Jewett, the right pronunciation is Giagwich or Giagwich. But again, native speakers may do it differently. But the point is, we are setting up the conditions of a form of generosity and commitment of co-learning. And so what I would say is the argument here is not to throw the cannon out, the baby out with the bathwater. The lesson to be learned here is to begin to interrogate more critically what could be the ongoing contributions of all humankind for us to continue learning. And that's urgently so. And I don't only mean it about authors. There's a concept I have called theodicy of the text where we forget that books are written by human beings. And what we need to do is to understand if they're written by people, then we can critically engage them to continue learning. But it's also at disciplinary levels. We shouldn't be afraid to delve into quantum mechanics. We shouldn't be afraid to learn from developments in genetics. We shouldn't be afraid to learn also from the complexities of how people work in languages that may even have different conceptions of predicates than in our language. In other words, first and foremost, first and foremost, light that, get that spark, develop that love of learning and understand that that, what this is about because ultimately our humanity from the first human being who scratched out that symbol to us today, we're all connected because ultimately that is the disclosure of a world we call it human reality, and in that world, that's a world by virtue of which, through our, com- ability, our ability to communicate, we ultimately all
0: belong, and through which we can all grow. Thanks so much. Perhaps i just a, a very brief one, brief question, brief response, if you could. Uh, Jonathan Weber, a philosopher in Wales, Cardiff, Do you think that decolonizing philosophy requires abandoning the idea that it should be a single collective pursuit of truth? Should we be thinking sort of a plurality of philosophies?
1: Thank you very much for that, Jonathan. The short answer is, I don't think we should worry about pluralism. It'll be great if there are philosophies. Of course, the moment we get into metaphilosophy, which is part of what this talk was about, we tend to to, to raise the question of whether there is a philosophy of the philosophies. But we should bear in mind that it's possible for philosophies to meet. Too often we have meetings where philosophers meet, but philosophies don't. But if philosophies meet the way disciplines can meet, then they could transcend themselves
0: and actually develop better relationships with reality. Thanks very much indeed. I don't know whether you would agree with this, Lewis, but I mean, it, it struck me that uh, when people talk about decolonizing, decolonizing philosophy, um, there there is obviously quite a lot of resistance to that at the moment, and some people who think that people are too—I don't know—people uh, talk about you know excesses sort or of guilt and historical this or the other. But it seems to me that when you spell out what's necessary for this, um, actually, the things you spell out. You could you could spell out a list, you could say you know let's have an openness, let's think about the relationality of human beings rather than the atomization of it. Let's avoid methodological fetishism these are all good things, and actually you know if if we pursue these, we would have a decolonialized philosophy, but they're all you don't have to even mention the word decolonial to see that these are good things right correct in right. fact, one of the things one of a big subtext of a lot of what I was saying is
1: that unfortunately, uh, there are certain turns that philosophers have taken that are actually antipathetic to philosophy. I'm actually making a call for philosophy to be true to its spirit, which requires itself developing the kind of humility to say that it's not the final answer in reality and that its willingness to learn means that it may be willing to transcend itself. But of course, it may mean that you discover that that is a new philosophy or something philosophically actually far more inclusive and that would be great but one thing i should also mention is that decolonizing is also one problem with it is that it it's a negative turn right it's a it's something that is actually saying there's something wrong to be fixed but there's also a decolonizing for if it stays simply in a negative dialectic of what it's 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 against then it's, it, it could collapse into its own fetishism because it can be reactionary. We need also to think about the question of what decolonizing is for. And this is what Catherine Walsh and others have mentioned. And this is what's behind the spirit of actually not having to say the word actually decolonial at that point. You notice I said teleological suspension of philosophy, et cetera, but we didn't have to do that. We could say philosophy beyond philosophy. And again, it's a paradox. The main point at the end of the day is that we need now to start thinking through what, what certain, certain thinkers have characterized as the right organization of the kind of attunement and virtues that would be, be important conditions for us to move forward with thought, particularly thought that's aware of institutions of power, political realities, etc., rather than collapse all thought into a siloed and almost reactionary protective model. And that, of course, always carries risk. But at the same time, among the virtues that we can bring to our endeavours is the virtue of courage.
0: Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes in this series, so do subscribe on whichever platform you use, leave us a review, and tell your friends about us. You can also watch video versions of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at royalinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.